Let us celebrate with joy in the presence of our Lord and King. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. This is the last No Nonsense Catholic before the Feast of the Nativity in the year of our Lord 2021. So today we're going to talk about Christmas. And since this is the most festive season of the year, we will also take a look at a forgotten virtue, what St. Thomas Aquinas called eutrapelia. That's the virtue of happiness. But to begin, we will unpack the readings from last Sunday's traditional Latin Mass, which was the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Liturgically speaking, uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent points beyond Christmas to the preaching of John the Baptist, and even beyond that to the second coming of uh, Christ. And that's to remind the faithful, you and I, to avoid judging our neighbors and uh, to encourage us, uh, on the contrary, to judge ourselves and to cleanse our hearts for the reception of Jesus as our Savior at Christmas so that we can be prepared to receive him when he comes again in glory as our judge. So the epistle for the fourth Sunday of Advent, the traditional Latin Mass, is 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Brethren, people should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. It is of no importance to me if I am to be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I personally have nothing on my conscience, but that does not mean that I am innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the appointed time until the Lord comes. He will bring light to what is hidden in darkness and will disclose the motives of all hearts. Then each one will receive the proper praise from God. So what have we here? Uh, First, how priests should be regarded by the faithful. The church wants to inspire us with respect and veneration toward our priests, who are ministers of Christ, dispensers of the mysteries of God, and of course, the advocates of religion. The scripture says, presbyters, that is priests, who do their duty well, should be considered deserving of a double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. That's St. Paul in 1 Timothy 5. And uh, St. Luke says, or or Jesus says in St. Luke, I should say, whoever listens to you, he's talking to the apostles, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the ones who sent me. So respect for the successors of the apostles is no small matter. But on the other hand, we also see that priests may not administer the holy sacraments as they please, for they are stewards of Jesus Christ, the scripture says. They're stewards, they're acting in his name, and therefore they must observe his will, which is that they should administer the sacraments for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. That's the faithful, that's us. They are not permitted Uh, as our Lord says in Matthew 7, verse 6, to give that which is holy unto dogs, or to cast their pearls before swine. They should not, therefore, give absolution to those who do not have a firm resolution to avoid sin in the future, firm purpose of amendment, or give holy communion to those who are manifestly in a state of, of mortal sin, for fear that by doing so they would thereby not only cause scandal, but condemn themselves. And that's some priestly food for thought when, you know, the, the pro-abortion politician presents himself for communion 
or or a couple in an invalid marriage want to receive absolution and and communion without correcting their situation. You know, and also we can see from the words of St. Paul that it uh, a priest should consider it a very small matter to be judged by men because human beings generally judge by appearances and not by reality. St. Paul says in Galatians 1, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of God. So not only priests, but the faithful also, we must seek to please God rather than men. It is just, it's just plain nonsense to follow all of this stupid and scandalous fads and fashions in whether it's dress or manners or entertainment, much less morals. You know, how, how foolish it is to, to uh, neglect your religion, how, how foolish, how dangerous to your soul to always be asking, what will the world say? You know, what will other people say rather than what will God say? What will my Savior say if I do this or that or the other thing? And then finally, St. Paul says, I don't even judge myself because even he could not know how God would judge him. Ecclesiastes 9.1 says, the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. As to, well, as to whether they will earn love or hatred, we have no way of knowing. Therefore, St. Paul says, I personally have nothing on my conscience, but that does not mean that I am innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And we should, therefore, examine our conscience thoroughly. But even if we find nothing in us that we think displeases God, we shouldn't consider ourselves better than anybody else. Quite frankly, my image of myself may be uh, something different from what I truly am in the sight of God. And no doubt many people that consider themselves innocent and holy are going to be shocked on the Day of Judgment when they're stripped of all their pretensions and their inmost hearts are laid bare for all to see by God. I think of our, Lord, our Lord's words in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. I mean, this alone should be enough to convince us not to judge before the time, either ourselves or others because we know even less of other people's hearts than we do of our own. So, like St. Paul, then, we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as it says in, in Philippians 2, but, of course, with confidence and hope in the grace of God. Now, uh, on to the gospel for the fourth Sunday of Advent, the traditional um, calendar. that comes from Luke 3, verses 1 through 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. He journeyed throughout the entire region of the Jordan Valley, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the, one, or the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill shall be leveled. The winding roads shall be straightened, and the rough paths made smooth, and all mankind shall see the salvation of God. So, 
first thing I ask myself, I read this gospel, is why uh, is that time when John started to preach described in so much detail? And it's because it was that year that the prophecy of Jacob was fulfilled. The scepter was taken from Judah. The, the long-expected Savior showed himself to the world and was baptized by John, declared by his heavenly Father to be his beloved Son whom we should hear. Apart from the Gospels, the name of Pontius Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas and Lysanias and all the rest would have been lost to history. But so that this special moment in time should never be forgotten, John the Evangelist describes the precise time and mentions the names of both the spiritual and temporal rulers to show that the coming of the Messiah didn't happen, you know, once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but at a very specific time and place in the really real world among real historical people whose names he knew because he was their contemporary. As he says in John 21, 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. Or as St. Peter says, we did not rely upon cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, we had beheld his majesty with our own eyes. Right, 2 Peter 1.16. So this gospel reminds us here in the final days of Advent to make sure that the Lord's path is well prepared in our own heart and to ask our Lord to help us to do what we can't do by ourselves, which is to fill up the valley of our own hearts with his grace and to straighten out our crooked will until it conforms to his, and to ask his grace to soften the rough patches, the rough paths uh, of our mind and bring low uh, whatever in us might impede his way so he can come to us without any obstacle and enter our hearts and reign with us forever. Amen. You know, Catholics, at least liturgically, don't start celebrating Christmas until the 24th of December, but then we have a whole Christmas season. It goes all the way to Epiphany or even beyond, depending upon how you reckon it. Uh, and when the rest of society is just taking down the decorations, we're just getting started. But one thing I really love about this time of year is that I can turn on the radio without worrying about what I'm going to hear. You know, we have a, a local station here in Los Angeles plays Christmas music 24-7 the whole month of December. And not only is it nice to hear a greater variety of musical styles and artists than usual, but also to hear the holy name of Jesus. I just mentioned to Terry and Mary Danielle the other day how I heard Bing Crosby singing Adeste Fidelis on the radio. You know, how often do you tune into the radio and hear Bing Crosby? much less singing a hymn, much less singing a hymn in Latin. <laughs> and the, the thing is, the, the, the fact that a major market like Los Angeles has a station playing a month's worth of Christmas music tells me something. It means that millions of people want to hear this music. You know, it's not just L.A., it's, it's stations all over the country, and they're selling advertising time, okay? If people didn't want to hear it, they wouldn't play it. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope for our civilization that our culture hasn't completely abandoned Christ. And that makes me happy. And we're going to talk about that later. But when we come back, we're going to talk about Christmas. We're going to come back with the reason for the season right here on A Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic. We'll be back right after these messages. So stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the reason for the season, and that is the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We read about it in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree was issued by Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken throughout the entire world. This was the first such registration, and it took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone traveled to his own town to be enrolled. Joseph, therefore, went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. He went to be registered together with Mary, his betrothed, who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to have the child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. One of the best-known stories in all of uh, Western culture, all the world. Caesar Augustus, ruler of the vast empire of, the Ro of Rome, uh, which included, in those days, Judea. And Herod, this is Herod the Great, the father of Herod Antipas, who would be such a uh, pain to John the Baptist. Herod was not an independent sovereign. He was a puppet king under, uh, under the Romans. Um, and he governed in their name. And so he had to pay part of this tax to Rome as a tribute. So the enrollment of the, uh, the subjects of the empire in Judea was made by tribes and families, which was according to the Jewish custom and each had to go to his own city, that is to say, to the town where his family came from and in which the public register was kept. So Bethlehem was the town to which David belonged, and so Mary and Joseph, both being descended from David, had to have their names inscribed there. And Bethlehem is about five miles to the south of Jerusalem. So from Nazareth, that's a journey of some 70 miles, and of course, uh, going on foot with Our Lady presumably riding on a, on a donkey and very, very pregnant. So when Mary and Joseph arrived at Bethlehem, the gospel says there was no room for them in the inn. So they went to a cave or, or a grotto outside of the town, which was used as a stable by the shepherds in bad weather and was therefore fitted with a manger. Now today, over that grotto, uh, grotto in which our Lord was born, there's a splendid church that was first built by the Emperor Constantine and his mother, St. Helena. And in the Grotto of the Nativity, for, for the thousand years, 32 lamps were kept continuously burning. You know, presumably, our Lord was believed to be 33 at the time of the crucifixion, so the, the 32 lamps represented the years that would pass from his nativity to his passion. And tradition tells us that Mary was absorbed in prayer, and then the child was born to her. And, you know, one of my pet peeves um, about most of the Jesus movies that you see is that Mary is portrayed undergoing the pain of childbirth, right? She's, she's you know, uh, in the midst of her travail, if you will. And, uh, and, and the pain of childbirth is one of the curses of original sin. And we know that Mary was preserved from original sin. She never for one moment had the stain of original sin. And, of course, she also remained a virgin after Jesus was born, which is, of course, miraculous. I like the way that the old Roman catechism, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, describes the birth of Christ as wonderful beyond expression or conception. It says, 
he's born of his mother without any diminution of her maternal virginity. And as he afterwards went forth from the sepulcher, whilst it was closed and sealed, and entered the room in which his disciples were assembled, the doors being shut, or not to depart from natural events, which we witness every day, as the rays of the sun penetrate without breaking or injuring in the least the substance of glass, after a like but more incomprehensible manner did Jesus come forth from his mother's womb without injury to her maternal virginity, which, immaculate and perpetual, forms the just theme of our eulogy. This was the work of the Holy Ghost, who at the conception and birth of the Son so favored the Virgin Mother as to impart to her fecundity and yet preserve inviolate her perpetual virginity. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is born to Mary, leaving her virginity intact like light passing through a window. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a romantic storybook understanding of an historical event. <clears throat> this is Catholic dogma. The divine maternity and the perpetual virginity of Mary are de fide. They are non-negotiable. You know, and remember, I always say a traditional Catholic is not necessarily one who goes exclusively to the traditional Latin mass. A traditional Catholic is, is one who can say the act of faith and mean it. Oh my God, I believe all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches because you have revealed them who can neither deceive nor be deceived. And so he was born without uh, disturbing the virginity of, of Mary. And then Mary, virgin and mother, wrapped him in swaddling clothes with her own hands and laid him in the manger belonging to the stable. And full of faith, she adored him as the son of the Most High. So what does the scriptural account of the birth of Christ teach us? First, about divine providence. You know, the prophet Micah foretold that the Savior would be born at Bethlehem. But how unlikely was it that that prophecy would be fulfilled, for one thing, seeing that Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth? It was the providence of God that directed the pagan emperor of Rome to order that all of his subjects be enrolled, and that this decree should be executed in Judea at the very time uh, when the birth of the Redeemer was at hand. And, uh, you know, obedient to authority, as always, Mary and Joseph journeyed to Bethlehem to inscribe their names in the city of David. And so, you know, all, all unwittingly, the Roman emperor was made to take part in the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Redeemer would be born in Bethlehem. This is, the, this is the way divine providence works, and it is, I mean, it seems miraculous, but this kind of thing is going on all the time. We also see here the divinity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is true man, born of the Virgin Mary, right? He's, he's the child of Mary and the, the son, that is to say, the descendant of David. But he's also the true God, son of the Most High, as was announced uh, you know, to Mary by the angel Gabriel. And he shows himself to us as man. For, you know, in the crib, we see nothing but a little child. But he reveals himself as God to our hearing, for the angels come and announce that this little child in the crib is the Savior, Christ the Lord himself. And therefore, we fall on our knees before the crib and adore the child there, saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. 
<clears throat> Bishop Sheen always points out that the first to do that were the shepherds and the wise men. The shepherds, because they were humble enough to know they didn't know anything, and the wise men, because they were humble enough to know they didn't know everything. Uh, what else do we see? The love of God, of course, the eternal Son, uh, God from all eternity, becomes man. He hides his, his omnipotence, his majesty, under the form of a poor, helpless child. God, God the Son, took the form of a servant and became like to us in all things except sin. Why? Why did he become a man? Why did he suffer and die? Why did he wish to redeem us? It's because of love. It's because he loved us with an infinite and divine love. And we love him because he first loved us. As it says in, in the you know most well-known verse in the entire New Testament, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten son. Let us therefore love God because God first loved us. Uh, okay, Scripture says uh, in this passage that Mary brought forth her firstborn son. Bone of contention amongst uh, our separated brethren. Does this suggest that Mary had other children? Okay, in a word, no. Firstborn's a legal term that has to do with his uh, the son's social standing and his right of inheritance. It doesn't imply that Mary had other children after Jesus, only that she had none before him. You know, Scripture, and you, if somebody's arguing this, you know, uh, with you, saying, "Well, how do you how do you reckon that out?" says firstborn, that means there must be more. Well, Scripture also refers to Jesus uh, as God's firstborn. He's the firstborn of God the Father. Although I would suspect that they believe that he is the only begotten Son of God, right? So even though he's his firstborn, he is his only born. Same with Mary. You know, uh, let's see, the Knights of Columbus Everybody knows the, the motto, keep Christ in Christmas. That's, it was the Knights of Columbus that came up with that. Last year, I saw a little meme that said the best way to keep Christ in Christmas is to keep Mass in Christmas. And um, we celebrate Christmas this time of year because according to tradition, this is when Christ was born, you know, on, on, in the night between the 24th and 25th of December. Christmas is therefore kept on December 25. And, um, you know, traditionally there were three masses that could be said by each priest, uh, specifically on Christmas Day. And, you know, once upon a time, all of the priests would say three masses on this day for three important reasons. Number one, to give thanks to the three persons of the Trinity, all of whom cooperated in the incarnation of Christ. Number two, to honor the threefold birth of Jesus Christ. That's his eternal birth, right, in the bosom of the Father. He's God from all eternity. His temporal birth, right, the birth of uh, Jesus and the, from the Virgin Mary, and then his spiritual birth in our hearts, where he lives by his grace, where he, where he resides within us. So the first Mass is said at midnight, and that reminds us that before Christ was born, the world was in darkness and the shadow of death, right? In the night he was born, because both his temporal and eternal births are mysterious, Mysterious truths that are incomprehensible to our understanding, how he could exist from all eternity as God, right? The mystery of the Trinity, and also the mystery of the incarnation, how God can become a man and be like us in all things but sin, and be truly man, and yet be truly God, right? A mystery that we call the hypostatic union. 
And then the second mass would be celebrated at dawn because the birth of Christ is what brought light to the Gentiles, right? Uh, the, the, before Christ was born, uh, the, the Jews were the chosen people, the people of Israel. But now that's going to be extended to the entire world. He is the light of the world. And, um, you know, it was, it was about that hour, too, at the hour of dawn, that the shepherds came to see him and adore him as the newborn Savior. And then the third Mass is celebrated during the day because uh, Jesus Christ dispersed the darkness of ignorance and appeared as the light of the world, as this is in John 1, 9. But amidst the joy of this season, from December the 25th to January 6th, Feast of the Epiphany, we also realize another important truth, and that is that the sufferings of Christ began with his birth. Now, we're going to talk about that when we return. Also, I saw an uh, article uh, on theblaze.com by a fellow named Steve Deese. He had some interesting things to say about this. So all that and more. Also, the virtue of happiness later on in the program when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Before the break, I mentioned that our good Lord's sufferings began with his birth, right there at the Nativity. The Son of God became man to suffer. God, he couldn't suffer as God, so he became man so he could suffer for us, so that he could make satisfaction for our sins, so that he could redeem us from sin and hell. And all his life long, he suffered unspeakably for us. And that suffering began with his very birth. He came into the world in a state of utmost poverty and humility. And, for, you know, for the Son of God, which is to say God the Son, second person of the Blessed Trinity, for him to take human nature upon himself at all uh, would have been an infinite humiliation. Even if he'd been born in a royal palace, even, even if he'd been laid on, on silken cushions in a golden cradle. But he desired to humble himself still more. And so he was born into the world in a poor stable and laid in, in the rudest of cribs, a, a, a manger for the feeding animals. The Lord of the universe, the son of David, of whose kingdom there was to be no end, as the angel Gabriel told Mary, could find no home in the city of David, who's shut out from the dwellings of man, who's rejected by human society and driven to find refuge among the beasts, who is wrapped in, in, in the most coarse of all swaddling clothes and, and laid in a manger belonging to shepherds. Later on, our Lord would say that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had no comfortable little bed, no soft, warm pillow. His tender body laid on the hard straw in a narrow crib, exposed to the damp uh, and the cold of winter. A piece of wood at his birth and a piece of wood at his death. That's all that Jesus received from the world. But our Lord chose for himself this extreme poverty and humility to make satisfaction even from the moment of his birth for our many sins, our sins of, of pride and our concupiscence of the eyes and the flesh, and to give us an example of humility and self-denial and mortification. 
you know, man fell by pride. We, we fell desiring the impossible, namely to be like God. And, and the fall of man was so deep that he fell all the way into the bondage of Satan and, and all, all manner of unimaginable sins and crimes. So in order to free us from sin and from hell, God the Son became man and was like us in all things except sin so that we could once more become the children of God. And that's the good news. And as he suffered, we also suffer. We're meant to pick up our cross daily and follow him. And remember, the nativity of Jesus was accompanied by the slaughter of the innocents. I mentioned in the last segment that I read an article the other day by a fellow named Steve Deese over at theblaze.com. Somebody uh, posted it on on uh, uh, Facebook, I think, and I went over there and looked at it. And it's called, At Christmas, God Shows a Rebellious World Just How Radical He Can Be. And, you know, in the midst of, or the course of this little op-ed piece, Mr. Deese recounts how back in 1973, and this is after nearly 2,000 years of Christian history, Abortion became the law of the land in the United States, okay, baby killing. And then came legal euthanasia, uh, where people would make the argument that starring, starving Terry Schiavo to death was, quote-unquote, the right thing to do. And then, of course, after that came the gay marriage, and now we have the gender fluidity, et cetera, et cetera. And after reciting this awful litany, he says, and I'm quoting now, to sum up, The spirit of the age is telling you loud and clear that you have absolutely zero inherent worth, none, not in the womb, not out of it. You are an abstraction, an accident, and what you most definitely aren't is a creation. Because if you are a creation, which implies some kind of inherent worth, then there is a creator who defines what that worth is which is why the spirit of the age has gone to such great pains to redefine reality. He says all the way to the points, uh, the point of pronouns. But his larger point is that God is the real target, not us. You know, it's Herod all over again. He attacks all the boy children, but he's trying to kill Christ. But the fact of the matter is Satan can't win an open battle against God. So uh, he tries to put an end to our relationship with him. And so the spirit of the age, you know, has to end the relationship to reality itself. And so Mr. D says, uh, quote, there must be nothing inherent, thus nothing sensed of true value. You must be in perpetual exile, which is where that baby in the manger comes in. And so he does. God, God the Son, humbled himself so that we might be exalted. He became poor so that we might be rich in grace here and now, and even richer still someday in heaven. You know, so on your next visit to church, I imagine they've got the nativity scene up. You know, kneel down before the crib and thank our Lord Jesus with all your heart and renounce anything and everything in your life that's not pleasing to him. As St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's your holiness, and nothing can make you happier than being holy. You know, something that makes me happy this time of year is all of the um, 
what you call it, all the all the decorations. You know, I mentioned the Christmas music and how nice it is to be able to turn on the radio and hear the holy name of Jesus and to hear these wonderful songs and all the different artists and different styles of music and everything. But we also have uh, the decorations. And, you know, many of those decorations are, of course, explicitly Christian. Uh, when I was a boy, I grew up in uh, Glendora, California, and next to the city hall, there is an old, old uh, pine tree, and it's huge, you know, um, big enough that you can walk around underneath the branches of it, okay? This lets you know how big this pine tree is. And every year at Christmas, they would string lights on it. They'd get a crane out, and they'd string the lights on it, and we'd have a Christmas tree lighting there in the old part of town. And underneath that pine tree each year, they would have a living nativity, right? Which goes all the way back to, to St. Francis of Assisi. It goes back to the Middle Ages. So there's, there's actors and, uh, and real animals, you know, and, and actors portraying not only Joseph and Mary and the wise men and the shepherds, but the angels and so on. Uh, and, it, and it was beautiful, you know? And, and it reminded me, or it reminds me that at Christmas, even the most iconoclastic of our uh, separated brethren, you know, you know what I'm talking about, those people who think that Catholics are idolaters because we have statues of Mary and the saints in the church or whatever, even they relax the prohibition on graven images, quote unquote, at this time of year. Whenever, you know, Christmas, Christmas rolls around, out come the statues of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and the angels and the wise men and so on. So, you know, Christmas is is a good time, I think, to share with our fundamentalist friends about the legitimate use of, of religious images. But the, the reason I brought it up is that, you know, seeing all of that makes me happy, that it gives me pleasure. I find that very pleasant. And that brings us to our uh, a final topic today, which is eutropelia. Eutropelia, that's, that's, it is uh, the, the forgotten virtue, I call it. You know, the Declaration of Independence uh, lists among our inalienable rights, which they say man was endowed by our creator, the pursuit of happiness. And that pursuit has largely been replaced in our culture uh, with an obsession for pleasure. You know, uh, Neil Postman went so far as to say that we are amusing ourselves to death. <laughs> I think he's right. And pleasure is about gratification and satisfaction and excitement. But happiness is about fulfillment and meaning. It's living a life of meaningful activity guided by the intellect and will, the spiritual faculties. That's at the heart of human happiness. Whereas, you know, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain are natural characteristics, but they're not distinctively human characteristics. You know, uh, desiring satisfaction and excitement is common among all the animals. But experiencing pleasure or pain doesn't require the use of the intellect or the will. You know, merely asking the question, what is happiness, proves the point. But pleasure is something that, that we receive from some object or action, whereas happiness is something we do. Happiness is about the meaningful activities of thinking and choosing, right? Intellect and will, creating. Now, pleasure is certainly an ingredient in happiness, uh, no question. But obviously not all pleasures promote happiness, right? You got a lot of people uh, hooked on drugs and, and pornography, and, you know, they're, they're constantly ranting on the internet and, and going from, 
you know, uh, uh, one story to another makes their blood boil because, you know, it gives them pleasure, but it obviously doesn't make them happy. And then, you know, because of those things, I, some people think that, that holiness and pleasure are incompatible because so many of the things that, that give pleasure are, are illegitimate, but this isn't so. There's a there's an old story uh, I'm assuming from the Middle Ages about Saint John the Apostle, and uh, one day the story goes that some people came across Saint John with his friends playing games and telling jokes and and having a, a nice time, and they were shocked by this. This is not the kind of of behavior that they expected from someone who's so close to our Lord, you know, some an apostle playing games, and so Saint John undertook to set him straight. One of his friends was shooting arrows at a target. And St. John explained that people are like an archery bow. He said, if you just keep shooting arrows and don't relax the bow occasionally, it'll snap. That's why St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, it is requisite for the relaxation of the mind that we make use from time to time of playful deeds and jokes. And the point is clear. Human beings need time to relax and to rest. They need time for enjoyment and games and witty conversation and recreation. If you break that word down, it's re-creation, about restoring and recharging, and about the intellect and will, which are the spiritual qualities of the soul. And we're going to come back and and unpack that when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. Final No Nonsense Catholic before the Feast of the Nativity of Our Lord. And we're talking about eutropelia, about the, the virtue of happiness and pleasantness and playfulness. You know, we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves, and if that's so, then we need to know how to love ourselves properly. And that includes knowing when to stop and when to relax. And you might think that's only common sense, and I agree, this is, after all, no-nonsense Catholic, but, but how often do you hear about people burning out, right? Just exhausting themselves, running close to complete physical and emotional breakdown. Stress is a leading cause of, of all sorts of health issues. I mean, from acne to asthma, arthritis, arrhythmia, that's just the A's, right? <laughs> Stress also causes depression and high blood pressure and heart disease and, and weight gain or, or loss, fertility problems, et cetera, et cetera. Burnout can happen to, to people in any walk of life, in, in any profession, in any business. But you, you will find that it's often people in the, in the so-called caring or helping professions who tend to burn out, who tend to overdo it. So nuns and nurses and, and teachers and, and priests and parents. But burnout, you know, rather than being a sign of dedication and selflessness, it might show just a simple lack of wisdom. Right? It's, it's a failure to respect yourself. It's a failure to, to understand your own needs. It's an ignorance of your own limitations, not listening to the messages that you're receiving from your body. And you know what? I have to admit, I suspect I'm guilty of all those things. Which brings us back to our topic. 
You know, uh, Aristotle believed that, that what was required for proper relaxation and enjoyment wasn't just a social skill, but actually a virtue, a special virtue akin to the cardinal virtue of temperance, which, of course, is the virtue that helps us master our unruly desires. Aristotle is the one who called this special virtue eutropelia. And with this verse, uh, virtue, a person will not only know that they need to relax, but they'll know how and when. And because it's a virtue, it's concerned with what's morally good. And so it won't allow us, you know, it's, it's not a virtue if you enjoy yourself at the expense of others or, or in some way that's, that's wrong or disordered, you know, for example, taking pleasure in something destructive or, or obscene. And, you know, virtue, virtue is a mean. Virtue is the middle way between the defects of, or the sin of defect and the sin of excess. <clears throat> so like all virtues, eutropelia stands between uh, the extremes of excess on the one end, which is, you know, buffoonery, just, you know, being st stupidly carrying on. And, and then the defect, which would be boorishness, right? The inability to, to take a joke or have a good time. Eutropelia is in the middle. It strikes the right note. It, it helps us to relax in a morally and spiritually and physically healthy way. So as usual, Aquinas takes up what Aristotle says in the light of divine revelation. And he includes uh, Eutropelia in his account of the good human life in, in the Summa. He calls Eutropelia the virtue of pleasantness or playfulness. And St. Thomas says that like the body, the soul needs, uh, takes, takes rest in a, in a kind of pleasure that we call play. He says um, that such like words or deeds wherein nothing further is sought than the soul's delight are called playful or humorous. And of course, these words and deeds are only virtuous if they accord with right reason. They have to make sense. Okay, playfulness has a proper time, it has a proper place, it has a proper mode. But insofar as we play reasonably, we can speak of a virtue of playfulness. And therefore, there's a virtue that's related to games and recreational activities. You know, and through such, we restore the strength of our souls so that we can be more fervent in pursuing higher ends, uh, like, like contemplation, for example. And this, this is common sense wisdom, but it is found in divine revelation. After the work of creation in Genesis uh, chapter 2, God rested. He teaches us the, the, the need for, or Genesis 1, teaches us the need for times of rest and celebration. The Bible talks about special days and special years, Sabbaths and jubilees and all that. The point of God's work is to share his delight and happiness with men. In the book of Proverbs, Wisdom is personified. I, wisdom, dwell in counsel and am present in learned thoughts. All right, and that's Proverbs 8, 12. But wisdom is speaking here, personified. It speaks of being with God at creation in Proverbs 8, 30 and 31, where the Bible says, I was with him forming all things and was delighted every day, playing before him at all times, playing in the world and my delights were to be with the children of men. See, that's wisdom at play. So our holidays and Sundays are not just necessary relaxation to rest the bow, right, to gather our strength for the coming week or, or the coming season, whatever it is. 
Exercising the virtue of eutropelia can also offer perspective, right? Resting from our work reminds the wise among us that this is God's world and not ours, and that the progress of the world depends on him before it depends on us. Remember, we were just talking about the providence of God moving the Roman emperor to, you know, have the census of the empire in order to help bring about the fulfillment of the prophecy of the birth of the Messiah, about which he knew nothing. Right. I, when I was a boy, I used to go camping with my family and something that I did for, for, you know, well into my adult life. And I can remember, I'm sure I've told this story before, but it, but it fits. I was a young teenager in the midst of all my teenage angst. I had all my own problems with friends and school. And, and of course, being a teenager, I was also carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. And this was, this was in the seventies. This was during the Watergate time. And I went uh, camping with my uh, family and we went up to met my grandparents at Pioneer Campground up in Central California, up there uh, above Lake Isabella. And one evening on that weekend, we went down to, to fish and my grandpa called out to some fellow there. Hey, how, how are the fish biting? Says, oh, they're pretty good. Uh, by the way, did you hear they got them a new president down there? <laughs> and Richard Nixon had resigned and, and I wasn't there to, to see it on TV and I wasn't there to hear about it on the radio or read about it in the newspaper. Cause I was off in a, you know, in a campground that didn't have any, you know, access to media. And you know what? It didn't matter. It didn't matter that I didn't know about it right when it happened. And I realized that, you know, when I was 14, that God's creation chugged along for millennia before I was born, and it will likely continue long after I'm gone. Human life, my life, your life is a gift and a grace, and it's to be received with joy so that we can eventually enter the place of rest that is reserved for God's people, that eternal place of peace and delight. Aquinas said, man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys, it is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures, and which are false joys, which lead not to happiness, but to ruin. And this is so much of what people, uh, you know, they, they pursue pleasure. Pornography is a perfect example, but so is the, 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 what they call rage porn where people go uh, on social media or they go on the internet, they go on the television and they, they go from story to story to story that are calculated to make them pig biting mad, right? You read these stories and, and, and they're, they're designed to make you angry. And the weird thing is people derive an illegitimate kind of pleasure from that anger. And it's addictive. I remember there was a potato chip company when I was a kid that said, bet you can't eat just one, right? Because you have that potato chip and you know it's not good for you. And it's, and it's greasy and it's salty and it's crispy and it's wonderful. And it's, you know, it releases drugs into your brain and it, which immediately says, I want another one of those. It doesn't matter that it's bad for me. I want another one of those. You see, this is a false joy. St. Bernard said, there is no greater misery than false joys. 
Hence the importance of eutropelia. It's the virtue that enables us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the very serious business of enjoying the delights of friendship and love, family and friends, books and games and songs, good red wine and warm bread and strong cheese and dark brown beer. These are the things that, um, that help us to recharge and restore and repent and get on with the serious business of working out our salvation in fear and trembling, but in also in joyful hope. We don't know the state of our souls, but we can have that confidence in the grace of God, that if we are cooperating with his grace, communicated to the world through the sacraments of the church, that we can have every hope that we will spend eternity with him. That's the good news. That's the, that's the real message of Christmas. And I'll leave you, I'll leave this topic with, with the words of a man I think who really understood eutropelia. And I, and I, I encourage you to spend time with family and friends, to, to let go of everything that's going on in the world. We have a wonderful weekend coming up where we've got Fridays the 24th, Saturdays the 25th, the great feast of Christmas, and then we've got Sunday right after that, which is the, the you know, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. So enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself in, in, in a good way. And remember, like I said, I was going to leave you with the words of someone who understood eutropelia, and that's J.R.R. Tolkien, who said, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And amen to that. All right. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Next week, we're going to have our last show of 2021. Going to be talking about a whole lot of things, probably doing a year in review. So I really do suggest that you enjoy yourself over the weekend because we're going to come back next week and, and take a look back at 2021. Uh, which has been uh, quite the year for so many of us. But there's been good things as well. So we're going to share all of that. And uh, in the meantime, uh, I want to thank uh, everyone who listens and supports uh, all the programs here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, especially, of course, No Nonsense Catholic. And I want to encourage you uh, to pray for us because we're certainly praying for you. Also, if you... Uh, have been blessed by God in such a way that you can support us with uh, some uh, financial uh, as well as spiritual support. We'll appreciate that as well. Go to vmpr.org and you can hit the donate button. Until then, thank you for listening. Merry Christmas and may God richly bless you and your family.